Amen. Good morning, church. Hey, glad you're here. Um, we are in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, this morning. Uh, I just, I do, I did this during the first gathering, and I, man, just thinking about it over the last few weeks, recognize, you know, for those of you who are listening to us online, we have neglected you in many ways, so that we're glad that you are tuning in with us, we're glad that you're listening, we're glad that you are following along with us as a church family, and I would ask if you are feeling unengaged or wanting to know how to engage throughout the week, that you would send an email to hello at allofleife.church and just communicate with us that you're still out there, that you need some help, are there any ways that we can serve you, we would love to be able to do that to you and for you. Uh, this morning and in the weeks to come. So thank you for gathering with us. Church, uh, if you um, are new with us, we're glad that you are here. We're glad to be able to dig into Matthew's gospel together. We're in Matthew chapter 3. So um, someone said to me after the first gathering, uh, thank you for teaching us deeply through God's word. We are a kind of deep diving uh, church on Sundays. We like to be immersed and saturated in the scriptures. We do not believe that they are... um, that they are distant from our current situation, but that they, though they were wrote, uh, written rather thousands of years ago, they speak in unique ways to our context. The God who speaks and who is not hidden and who is not silent speaks to us today through his sacred word. So we open the scriptures and we travel through the scriptures and we contemplate and we submit and we obey the scriptures as those who are living in the year 2020. So with that, we're in Matthew's gospel, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And Matthew 3, 13 through 17 is the story of Jesus's baptism. It's this first moment um, that we hear from Jesus, that we see him doing something, acting. We've, we've, uh, <clears throat> we've seen his story, his birth narrative at the very beginning, but he was a toddler. He was a young guy at that time. And then this man named John the Baptist comes, kind of proclaiming a prophet is speaking again. He's proclaiming that a mighty one is coming. And now this morning, for the very first time in Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus living and speaking and pursuing his father. Starting points matter. How Jesus starts his ministry, it absolutely matters. Now, it's been commonplace in, um, in the modern church um, for, I've had multiple conversations on this level with folks, um, where they are asked to study theology or they're invited to kind of contemplate what the scriptures teach about certain subjects, about God's character, about his uh, nature, and they just kind of like wave the hand and say, you know, I'm just all about, uh, I, I want to love God and I want to love other people, but theology, the study of doctrine, that's not really my thing. Uh, Theology, what it means, just as a word, the etymology of the word is theos, which means God, and ology is the study of something. So theology is the study of God. It's the study of who he is, how he has shown up in the world, how he's guided the, the course of human events. It's the study of who Christ is, who the Spirit is, who God the Father is. But this mindset that says, you know, not theology, it's not for me, I don't want to get into that kind of stuff, um, it, it, it insists on loving a God and obeying a God that a person is not necessarily interested in objectively knowing. Think about it for a moment. 
I had multiple conversations with an elder at a former church of mine where he was invited into some of these discipleship groups that the men were a part of. And at one point, we were studying a book. It was actually called um, Bible Doctrine. And in this book, uh, this, this, this fellow, he just, he, he was like, you know what? Like, I'm not about theology. It's not really for me. To him, it was a dead conversation. It was a series of lifeless conversations that were just rooted in knowledge. And what this former elder was really conveying, I think, through his functional um, um, resistance to studying the scriptures deeply, uh, he, held, he held a false belief that, um, that the study and the, of the character and the nature of God was intellectual only, or it was only good for the head it was only a series of ideas that didn't kind of work their way down into the heart. And several years later, the story of that church, they, they folded, um, and the elders were nowhere to be found when it was a time for the church to be led. And I think what we saw in, in that was that they, we understood that they, these elders were not equipped to lead it, and they were not equipped to serve uh, this church, and they knew it. But here's the reality about the study of theology, the study of doctrine, the study of God's word. It always, 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 I'm saying that word for emphasis, it always has an end goal. The study of theology is not about just packing the knowledge into our heads so we can overcome the arguments or the objections. The study of theology has the end goal of this, love for God. Those whom we love, we study. We study those whom we love. Just ask young lovers. They're asking each other questions. They want to know favorite colors and foods, and they want to know family of origin stuff, and they want to know situations and, and, and history. We study those whom we love. <clears throat> J.T. English, he writes this. He says, uh, Doctrineless disciples cannot love God because they do not know him. We need to confront the idea that pervades evangelicalism that we can worship a God we do not know. As Jen Wilkin points out, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Now, we're equipped in different areas and with different intellects. There's some people that are, that are diving into theological concepts that just leave me in the dust, and I can't hang with them. I just can't hang with their arguments. I can't hang with what they're seeing. But there are people that I can hang with, and there are people that you can hang with. And God, God has given us his word as a means to make wise the simple, and his word is knowable by all of us to various degrees. And so the, the, the goal of studying doctrine is to know him and to love him. Now, our starting points matter. Our starting points matter. We're going to see in Matthew the starting point of Jesus's ministry, and we're going to get to know his heart. We're going to get to know how he responds to God. We're going to get to know how the Father and the Holy Spirit respond to him. We're going to get to see how Jesus interacts with another man named John the Baptist who has an amazing and very public ministry in the, the wilderness of Judea. So we can get to know God as we study and look at just five verses really, really intently this morning. Starting points matter, both from a perspective of beginning something for the first time, but also from the perspective of how our individual days began. So just as a further illustration on, on how starting points matter, the family that you grew up in, the parents that you have, still affects the way that you relate to the world around you. 
it has a profound effect on the way you relate to the world around you. Not having the approval or having the approval or not having the nurture and the presence of mom and dad or having the nurture and the presence of mom and dad in the home, it left its mark in some way and it has formed your thought life. It's formed how you see the world around you. Perhaps you've believed those words or you've rejected the words and the patterns that were, that were shown to you, but they still follow you and I closely behind and they exert influence on us. So our starting point, even in just how we relate to the world, our family of origin, it absolutely matters. That starting point matters. Even the starting point of our day matters. How irritating is it when you wake up late? You didn't set the alarm and now your day is kind of in a rush. And so you miss time with the Lord, you miss a shower, you miss coffee, you miss some of the rhythms that you really strongly rely on. You name it, whatever it is for you. Starting points of our day matter, starting points of our life matters. And what we're seeing in this text is the starting point for Jesus matters too. In Matthew, we've seen the starting point of Jesus's life. The starting point of his life matters. And so Matthew gives it to us. Jesus's life began in humility. He's born on the run. He's born alongside animals. He's born without fanfare or pomp. The high king of heaven descends, takes on flesh, and it seems like the lowliest of people are the only ones noticing. So you've got some shepherds that the angels reveal his birth to, and they roll up on Joseph and Mary, and you have some strange magi from the east, men of wisdom who roll up and bestow gifts. But beyond that, he's, he, he doesn't have much notoriety. But his mom and his dad, Joseph and Mary, they were completely devoted to the well-being of Jesus, and they loved their son. And they would do whatever it took, Matthew shows us, to shield Jesus from this evil king who's hunting their beloved little boy down. His life began in humility without a lot of notoriety. And now in, his, in this baptism narrative, we will see that his public ministry is very public ministry. No one has changed the world more than Jesus has. His ministry began in humility. He comes to this man named John to be baptized by him, to submit himself to John. We see that Jesus is completely devoted and eager to do whatever his father wills him to do, which includes being in, uh, included in a baptism that on the surface doesn't really apply to him because John's baptism was a baptism for the confession of sins. The people were repenting of their sins. Jesus didn't have any. So why was he baptized? Why did he submit to this baptism? It seems that he did so to please his father and to set up for us our future baptisms. And God the Father was a million more times devoted to Jesus than his earthly parents were. So I'm gonna hang our, uh, our, this message this morning on, on two main hooks. Um, number one, we're going to see the start of Jesus's earthly ministry. We're going to see the humble start of his ministry. And so you'll see that in verses 13 through 15. And then we're going to take a closer look and we're going to zoom in on Jesus's baptism as well, which includes these, these moments uh, where the heavens open visibly. The spirit of God descends and comes to rest on Jesus and a voice from heaven, the father speaks blessing and affirmation over Jesus. So let's read the text this morning. 
Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. <clears throat> then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. John would have prevented Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fulfilling for us to, fill, to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, John, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, he came out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. This is God's word. Father, would you speak to us through it? Would you empower us with your spirit? Would we hear the words in the depths of our own souls that Jesus heard in that moment from you? That we are your sons and daughters, and you're pleased with us, with who we are as people. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at this starting point of Jesus's ministry here. From the start, Jesus is intentional about affirming John the Baptist's ministry. John is this prophet out in the wilderness. He's howling, he's crying out in the wilderness, calling the people of Israel to repent of their sins and to submit themselves to God. And people are responding. He's creating a bit of a scene. It's not too much to say that there was renewal and revival in the land of Israel under John the Baptist's ministry. And so we see in this text, now Jesus came from Galilee to the, from, uh, rather to the Jordan, to John, purpose clause, to be baptized by him. So Jesus comes to John with purpose, but Jesus comes to John without sin. Jesus is for one of his disciples, a man named Peter in 1 Peter. It's a letter in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.20, he says this about Jesus. And, and, and Peter lived with Jesus over the course of three years. He saw the ins and outs and the contours and textures of Jesus's life. And he said this after Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended to be with the Father. He said this about Jesus. He committed no sin and neither was deceit found in Jesus's mouth. So Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. It's a baptism of repentance, but Jesus has no need of repentance. And Jesus displays his humility to John as they kind of tussle a little bit relationally here. John, John's like, no, 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 I've got sin. You baptize me. You're the mighty one. I'm not even worthy to carry your sandals. You need to dunk me. And Jesus says, no, 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 it is fulfilling. It, it is right for both of us to fulfill all righteousness by you baptizing me. I'm submitting myself to your ministry. And by doing so, Jesus is affirming what John has been saying in the wilderness. And so John initially resists Jesus, but then he consents. You see that at the end of verse 15, I believe. Then he consented. Both men demonstrate humility with one another. This afforded their ministries to be a complement rather than competition. This is incredibly important uh, for us as followers of Jesus. Humility in our own relationships, it helps people to complement one another rather than to compete against one another. And when we live in humility in our relationships by the grace that God provides, um, it helps each person in these relationships live in some degree of blessing where one person is giving and another is receiving and then another is giving and then another is, rece is receiving and we're living in complement as we live in humility. 
city. Rather than working against order, we're working within order. For example, in a marriage, it's good for a man to humbly provide. It's good for a man to humbly protect. It's good for a man to humbly give himself up for the good of his family, for the good of his wife and his children. And on the converse side of that, it is good for a woman to humbly receive his care and to humbly respond to him with the care of her own. Humble care that's thankful and that's team-oriented, where both of them are saying, what do we need to do within our roles of responsibility and our God-given gifts? What do we need to do to serve one another, to serve the Lord, to serve this family? It's also good when somebody um, does evil against another person or offends another person to come to them and to ask for forgiveness. And then it's good for the person who is being asked of forgiveness to extend and grant forgiveness so that there can be reconciliation between two people. It's good for us to live in humility. And we see Jesus living in humility here um, with John, and we see John living in humility with Jesus. Now, John the Baptist has been forecasting a mighty one to come. Um, in verse 11, right before the section that we're in this morning, John's saying, there's one coming. He's mighty. I'm not, wor- I'm not worthy to take off his sandals and perform a, a foot washing for him and per- perform kind of the role of the lowliest household uh, servant. John rightly recognizes his boundaries. He rightly recognizes his place. And John's, uh, there's another apostle of Jesus. He wrote a gospel named the Gospel of John. This is a different guy than John the Baptist. Um, John would write about John the Baptist saying, John the Baptist said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And so what we see from John the Baptist, we see that he was willing to set aside his thriving, vibrant, like ministry in order to allow Jesus to take center stage. He stepped out of the way so that Jesus could step out front. And Jesus came to John wanting to be baptized for a reason. He came saying, uh, as they tussled a little bit here, he says, no, 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 may it be so, for it's fitting for us, for the two of us to work together. It's, it's fitting for us in order that we might fulfill all righteousness. As I think about the word righteousness, it, it tends to be a word that I, I define fairly narrowly. But I think Matthew is, is, is bringing about a more broad definition or use of the word um, righteousness here. I tend to think of it as being good or being legally correct, which is a, which is a correct theological way to understand the word righteousness. But I, I do think um, there's a commentator named R.T. R. France who helped me kind of understand that Matthew's use of righteousness seems to um, be more used at, in this gospel as a synonym for what it means to live the Christian life. Uh, to be righteous is to be submissive before the Lord and be obedient to him. And so as a, a means to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus is saying it's good for us to obey the Father's will. It's good for us to step out and for, pe- for people to see me baptized by you. And Jesus knows that there's coming a new, that the baptism will now be a new sacrament and a new command and a new way of life in the future for his people. Jesus essentially, by coming to John for baptism, but without sin, he's doing something very particular here. He's identifying with the sins of his people. He's foreshadowing how he will be a substitute for his people who, though he is sinless, he takes and bears their sins 
himself. And so by submitting to this baptism under the confession of sin, though Jesus is sinless, he's identifying with his people. This was spoken of way before through this prophet named Isaiah, about 700 years before Jesus lived. Isaiah wrote as the Lord spoke to him in Isaiah 53, 11. He says this about this coming Messiah, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall this righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous or morally justified, and he shall bear their iniquities. So Isaiah here is pointing to how this coming Messiah will bear the sins, bear the iniquities of his people. And then after Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, the Apostle Paul writes to this young church in Corinth, um, and he says this about Jesus' sin-bearing. He says, For he, God, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So though sinless, Jesus is identifying, taking on the sin of sinners. Listen to what Bruner, um, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner, he's a former uh, professor at Whitworth, and uh, he's written a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew that's been so helpful, so I'm gonna quote him a few times this morning. Listen to what he says here. This is so good. Let it sit on you. The first thing, starting points matter, the first thing Jesus does for the human race is go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. Jesus' whole life will be like this. It's well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. From his baptism to his execution, Jesus stays low at our level, identifying with us at every point, becoming completely one with us in our humanity. As in the church's teaching, Jesus is believed to be completely one with God in eternity. So thoroughly God, thoroughly human. Together we see this in the life of Jesus Christ. He's humble. That's how he begins his ministry in humility. He's willing to do everything that the Father asks of him. From the start to the end, that's what we see in Jesus' life. It's beautiful. Here's my second point. Jesus is baptized. So we're going to look at this baptism in verses 16 and 17. Through um, We're going to look at these three primary movements. The heavens are opened. The Spirit descends and comes to rest on him. Matthew tells us like a dove. He didn't have language for it, but that's how he was trying to describe it. And then the heavens, someone speaks from the heavens audibly and says something very particular about who Jesus is and his demeanor toward Jesus. The heavens were open to him, verse 16, as he came up out of the water. The heavens have been closed, closed to the people of Israel for like four, something like 400 years The prophets have been silent. They've not been speaking. As the prophets are silent, the people are drifting in Israel. One of the Proverbs says that without vision, a people perishes. 
And so the prophets have not been calling the people of Israel to repentance. They've not been saying, thus says the Lord. They've not been calling and correcting the people to rightly observe the law and temple worship. And so the, 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 the leaders of Israel are doing in many ways what is right in their own eyes, and they're adding to the law of God. And as Jesus would say, they're putting burdens on the people of Israel that are too heavy for them to carry. But now a man in the wilderness is crying out. He's a prophet. It's causing people to notice. It's causing people to come near in order to identify with God. And this prophet's message is be baptized, confess your sins, come into the river and be washed clean through your confession. John's ministry is clearing the trail for Jesus's ministry here flattening the trail, removing debris, making it such that the people are prepared for this Messiah now to enter. They're hungry, they're prepared. And Jesus begins his ministry as the humble one who the heavens visibly open for. This is outside of our naturalistic explanation. The heavens open here is Matthew is wanting to show us and all of the gospel writers show us. Even Mark will, will use this phrase, the heavens are torn open. There's some kind of like violent movement in the heavens that makes this more than just the sun parting a few clouds. There's a supernatural activity that's happening as these heavens heavens are open. It's confirming that heaven is coming to earth, that the high father in heaven, the high king of heaven has, Jesus has, has descended and is here and God is communicating. The father is communicating with his son. The spirit is coming to rest on Jesus. God is setting up camp with humanity. God is not silent. God is not hidden. He's the God who speaks. The writer of Hebrews in your New Testament, Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two will say, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. That's what's happening in this moment. The father is empowering his son. The heavens open, showing that there's synergy between heaven and earth in the work of Jesus Christ. The heavens open, the Spirit of God descends and comes to rest on Jesus, seems to stay put on Jesus. They're open, the heavens are opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. He doesn't have another way to describe it. He's using the language that he knows, like a dove, and coming to rest on Jesus. There's probably theological implications to the dove uh, here in the beginning of creation in Genesis 1. Um, the word tell, Moses tells us that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, the darkness of the expanse. He's, Matthew is probably trying to show us here that there's synergy between Genesis 1 and what's happening in Jesus' baptism here. This moment of the Spirit descending on the Messiah and coming to rest on him, it's foreshadowed in several prominent places um, in the Old Testament, particularly in um, the writings of Isaiah, who I quoted earlier, who wrote about 700 years beforehand. Um, Isaiah was continually calling the people of Israel to repentance for their rebellion, but Isaiah was also foretelling what the future would be like as God would redeem his people, as God would draw his people to him. 
Isaiah 11, 1 through 3 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon this coming Messiah. The Spirit will give him wisdom and understanding. Think about Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his, this Messiah's delight, shall be in the fear of the Lord. We see that to be true in the life of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42, 1 would say as well, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen. Now look at this language. Um, in, in light of Jesus' baptism and the voice speaking from heaven. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 61, 1. Now this is, seems to be the Messiah speaking. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. What does Jesus do? He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. What does Jesus do? To proclaim liberty to the captives. What does Jesus do? And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The Spirit resting on this Messiah was foretold hundreds of years earlier. And Matthew now is confirming for us this is what happened at Jesus' baptism. All four Gospels contain this moment of Jesus' baptism. We need to know that the reality of the Holy Spirit's empowerment, it wasn't limited to Jesus either. The prophecy extends to us as well. Prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Joel. Joel 2.28, he would say that, uh, he would say, it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So there's coming a day that all those who believe in God, the Spirit of God would be poured out on them and would empower them, not just a select few in the history of Israel, but, they would, but the Spirit would be widely poured out and empower God's people. We see that the heavens open. We see that the Spirit descends on Jesus and rests on him and empowers him for ministry. We'll see more about that in, in, in the coming weeks. Uh, but also a voice speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son, or my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The father speaks his blessing and approval audibly upon Jesus, so that all who were there would witness his approval, his affirmation, and his blessing. This is the one. He's the one you've been waiting for. Psalm 2-7 because Matthew is constantly reaching back into Israel's history, trying to show these new converts from Judaism to Christianity. They're now followers of Jesus. Matthew is reaching back into the Old Testament, showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Psalm 2.7 says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's a messianic psalm. Frederick Dale Bruner, he says, The final words in Jesus' baptism are the most important words of all. And they're at the end for emphasis. The voice from heaven identifies in tones of deep affection with the man undergoing Jesus, the man undergoing this baptismal experience. He's essentially saying, this is my priceless son. I'm deeply pleased with him. Only twice in the Gospels do we see or do we hear that the Father speaks audibly to Jesus. It's at his baptism and then it's midway through his ministry at his transfiguration when he's on the mountain and he's with Peter there and John and James and, and, uh, and he meets with some prophets from uh, of old. And it's this powerful moment where Jesus is transfigured. He's transformed. 
Bruner goes on to say here um, in this statement from God over Jesus at his baptism, here God is saying in so many words, in this man is everything I want to say, everything I want to reveal, everything I want to do, everything I want people to hear. In him, everything I want people to see. In Jesus, everything I want people to believe. If you wanna know anything about me, it's like the father is saying, if you wanna hear anything from me, if you wanna please me, get together with Jesus Christ. All the kindness heard in the father's voice is for, for his only true son is conveyed to us in baptism. The church believes that the most surprising gift of God is that human beings can have the favor of God that Jesus himself enjoys as God's unique son. In our baptism, at the moment of our baptism, we are allowed to hear the words spoken right at Jesus Christ. You are my priceless child. With you, I am well pleased. I am thoroughly pleased. So how do we, how do we respond? How do we, how do we think about this passage and, may, and, and, and take it out of the narrative about what objectively happened to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, but begin to um, ask the Lord, how do we respond to this? How do we think about this? How do we walk in obedience before you? <clears throat> Jesus began his ministry with baptism and he commands in Matthew chapter 28 that we begin our life and our ministry with him through baptism. He began his ministry in baptism, paving the way for us to begin our life with God through baptism as well. Baptism is this inaugural moment that should not be disconnected from the moment of our conversion. It should be very close in response. And in effect, it should be our first like major act of obedience, being being baptized. What baptism is, what it signifies, what it shows is a picture of how we were dead. We have died with Christ. We have been united with him in a death like his. And so we go under the water in baptism to show that we are one with Christ, that the old person, the old man, the old woman has died. And we come up out of the water as a picture of new life. We have been raised with him as well to new life. And so that visible declaration in the moment shows what we believe internally, but it also displays a picture of reality, spiritual reality that's more imminent and more real than the chair you're sitting on this morning, that that is what is true of you, Christian, beloved son or daughter. You will be raised with him to new life. Jesus, in Matthew 28, he commands us to be baptized. Go to all of the nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and baptizing them into the name of who? The Father. Into the name of who? The Spirit. Into the name of who? And the Son. Okay, Baptizing into the name of the Father and the Spirit and the Son. We see the Father and the Spirit and the Son active at work in Jesus' baptism. We see the Trinity in unity at Jesus' baptism. And now Jesus has commanded his people to be baptized into the name of the Father, into the identity of the Son, into the identity of the Holy Spirit. Have you been baptized? Have you, the person in your seat, 
Have you been baptized? Jesus commands his people to be baptized. If you want to know more about baptism, if you want to respond to him in obedience, I want to talk with you. I want to walk with you. I want to to help you think about this. But delayed baptism because of fear or because it's just kind of a big deal and I don't really want to do it, it's actually disobedience before the Lord. He wants you and I to be baptized. It's the first great move of obedience closely connected to our conversion. At the moment of our conversion, we are given two great gifts. And so baptism is meant to be connected to the moment of our conversion. The two great gifts that we're given at conversion, we're given more, but we're given these two distinctly. We are given divine favor and we are given the Holy Spirit at the moment of belief. If I present the, ver- the bare facts of Jesus' baptism here to you guys this morning, great. I- I've spoken faithfully. I've taught the word of God. You've got part of the essential story. But when you and I begin to connect our story to God's story and our stories begin to take on, um, as we connect our stories in baptism to Jesus's story of his life and his death, our stories individually begin to take on incredible purpose and incredible meaning and incredible power. Jesus's baptism inaugurated this new covenant age where God would write his law on our hearts and pour his spirit out on our flesh. And so in baptism, it's this distinct moment in time that we look to confirming that we have died to ourselves and we have been born again into a new family and we now live by a new power at work within us. If you want to hear more on that, I said this in the first gathering, Trevor has a really, really unique story at a moment in life where he was really questioning his faith. He was questioning the, re- the reality of God and how he fit into God's plan and purposes. And he talked with a professor of his at school and this professor uniquely pointed him back to the moment of his baptism. And he just kept pointing Trevor at his baptism. So ask Trevor to tell you a bit of that story and how that moment moment of looking at his baptism seemed to confirm for him who he was and God's disposition toward him. It's a powerful story. So we have too, like we've maybe been baptized, but we have these moments post-baptism where we grieve our sin. We, we doubt whether or not we are really part of God's kingdom. But our baptism is this distinct moment in time that, that, that is marked with promise. And so we can look back and we can lay hold on that initial confession of faith and that move of obedience and baptism. And we recognize, as Roman 8, Roman 8 teaches us, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our weak and our lowly and our doubting and our hard-hearted spirits that we really are children of God. And in that moment, we are comforted And in our moment of baptism, 
It not only points to this moment where we've been given the Holy Spirit, but it also points to this really powerful moment where the Father's voice is directed at us like he directed his voice and his words of affirmation and strength at Jesus as well. We are, you are, man, woman, child, whoever you are, you are beloved children of God. Starting points matter. Think about this. If you begin, and I begin my spiritual life, and each subsequent day unsure of how God sees me, unsure of my standing with him, how much effect does that have in our life? It really has a tendency to govern how we relate to God, how we see ourselves in the world, and how we treat the people around us. Like, how many people, and don't raise your hand, how many people in the room have Um, stories where we are deeply affected by our earthly dads. We're deeply affected by their neglect. We're deeply affected by abuse. We're deeply affected by their affection and by their love and by their generosity to us. Where we have a lack of approval or a lack of affection, a lack of love from our earthly dads, they shape us in profound ways. I have a friend who is the the youngest of four boys in his family, and it seemed to him like his brothers kind of got all of his dad's affection and equipping. And so as he grew up later in life, he began to try to perform his way into his dad's approval to try to get blessing from dad because dad spent time teaching the older boys how to change the oil and how to change tires and taking them out, doing kind of manly stuff. And my friend just felt neglected or looked over and unseen as the baby boy of the family here. And so he turned to sports and he's an incredible athlete and he excelled at sports But one of his brothers got into the pros and he only got into the farm leagues. And so yet again, it's like he's looked over no matter how well he was performing. And that performance mindset to try to get the attention of his earthly dad now has bled into his perform uh, into a performance mindset to get the attention of his father. And so when he his father in heaven. So when he fails or when he isn't performing or when he isn't serving or when he isn't giving or when he isn't praying or when he isn't reading the scriptures, he's continually measuring God's approval of him based on how he is living his life in any given moment. And it affects him even though he now is a dad. It affects him incredibly. He's trying to perform for a soothed conscience in a sense of God's approval. But by God's grace, he's walking out of that. If we see our life and the world around us through the lens of never quite having God's approval, it seems like he's not aware of you. Seems that he always wants more from you. Seems that he's displeased with you. Maybe he's embarrassed by you and your lack of affection for what matters to him. This shapes how we live in profound ways. But if we begin our lives, if we begin our days from a place of secure standing, understanding that our place with God as his people, as his son, as his daughter, the person in your seat, if you begin your day with an understanding that his approval of you is not based on what you do or don't do, he has declared you or a son or a daughter through your confession of faith, confirmed by your baptism. It shapes 
how you live and something distinct will start to pour out of your life if you recognize, even when you're filthy and even when you feel vile before him, even when you have a heart that, that, that seems like it doesn't have any desire for him whatsoever, if you begin your day, your moment, your thinking, even right now going, no, 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 no. What you say to me, Father, is that you love me and your affection is upon me and you have given me your spirit and you have given me your blessing now to empower me to follow you. It will turn you. It will turn your heart. You don't turn your heart so that he'll love you. You turn your heart because he loves you. And as that happens, something strange happens in the human heart as it warms toward him. He gives us, or we find in ourselves, this ability to begin to fight our sin and to pursue holiness. We recognize that he speaks a better word to us and a new word over us. We recognize that we have an enemy, and the enemy, Satan, is the author of sin, and this sin is aimed at our destruction where we allow it to live and to lurk. But when we rehearse that the Father loves us at great cost to himself, he's come to us and given us the Son, who at great cost to himself has given us his life. And then he gives us the Spirit, who at great cost to him as he's grieved over our sin, yet they continue to will all of their resources at our sanctification. Day after day after day after day, they're in hot pursuit of you and I. And so when we rehearse the truth that he loves us, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that he's not snarling at us, but willing to change us, a new taste erupts in our mouths. Our sin increasingly becomes bitter as our Savior becomes sweet. And not only that, but at our baptism, at this moment of conversion, at this moment when we continually daily rehearse the truth that we are God, we are God's, we are His beloved people, we begin to live with an awareness that we're not alone that the Spirit of God really does indeed rest on us, that he's here to empower us, to speak up, to confess our sin, to share the hope of the faith that we have. He empowers us to extend mercy to those who around us with a kind of boldness and non-ignorable joy. The Spirit empowers us to bold giving and generosity and service, this bottomless giving of ourselves for the good of other people. He empowers us to bold prayer, to intercession for the people around us, that they would, they too would know the Savior, that they would know the God who has created them. So this morning, here are two points of application. Have you been baptized? If you have not been baptized, you must be baptized according to the command of Jesus Christ. It's imminent for you. Don't live in disobedience anymore, but mark this confession and conversion. Mark it through baptism. Mark it through obedience. In spite of my fear, I'll follow you into obedience.
And then I want to give uh, just on the screen a short prayer. You could screenshot it if you want. Maybe this is a way that you begin your day um, and you begin to reshape how you're speaking to yourself and the words that are being preached to your own soul. Nobody talks to you more than you. You need to begin rehearsing the truth of who you are in Christ and the Father's demeanor to you. It might look like something, might look something like this. Father, thank you. Thank you. Before you ask of me, you speak to me. Because of Christ, I'm your priceless child. You're pleased with me. You see me, the details of my life, the contours and textures of my life. You see me. You love me. You lead me to do your will. You lead me to repentance. You lead me to faith. Father, equip me with your strength to fight my sin, to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, and to believe that you are near. As we start with that kind of a confession, that kind of an understanding, it will reshape your life. It might not in one day, it might not in two, but rehearsed over time, it will reshape how you live. It will reshape how you relate to God, and it will reshape how you relate to other people. Father, Help it sink in. Fill your people with affirmation. <clears throat> the affirmation that we are beloved, and so therefore for us to harbor our sin is incompatible with loving you. We must give it up. And then as we do, cover us and comfort us. Teach us to ask you for forgiveness on a regular basis so that intimacy with you would just continue to be cultivated. Thank you for speaking a word of blessing and affirmation over us when we know and you know to the bottom that so often we don't live up to it. You don't love us based on our performance. Jesus has performed in our place. And we're grateful. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> How you start matters. How you start matters. COVID has been a really unusual season of disrupting rhythms like crazy. And I know that one of the ways that COVID has uniquely paralyzed the church, I don't mean the institutional church, I mean the people of God, is through disrupting our rhythms. And I'm hearing, I'm, I'm seeing it in my own life. I'm, hear, I'm feeling it in my own soul. And I'm hearing it from a number of people that it is so hard to stay saturated in the word of God in this season, unlike anything I've ever experienced before. You are not alone in that. My hope is through the Spirit's power that he would call us to be a people of his word who would Schedule in our days time with him. His word would be coming in our ears. Download the Dwell app. We have it. Go find us on social media and there's a link. You can grab this incredible audio app to be able to listen to God's word as you work or travel, play, whatever it is that you do. <clears throat> there's some, Trevor note, um, noted these, um, these sheets that are on the back table. One is gold, one is green. They're little one-page um, descriptions of how to engage in community in this church family. Uh, whether through discipleship groups, little same-gendered groups of men and women, 
or whether through community groups, starting one yourself, like we will, we will guide you through this process, but we need connection for the sake of saturating ourselves in God's word and in the spiritual disciplines that will keep us alive. <clears throat> I didn't mean to say all of that, but I just know it's true. Like we're struggling. Lean in, not away. Lean in. His blessing is upon you.